This week, Blackhawk Mining and Emerge Energy file for Chapter 11. PG&E Unsecured Noteholder Group revises planned term sheet as parties gear up for plan exclusivity fight. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Raksha Manjanath for Reorg in New York. And I'm Alex Brosnan. Later in the episode, our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, talks to distressed debt analyst Adam Rhodes and distressed debt legal analyst Sean Daly about recent helicopter bankruptcies, including PHI and Bristow. Stay tuned for their conversation. It's Sunday, July 21st. Ahead of the hearing to determine whether PG&E can retain its exclusive right to file a plan, many stakeholders weighed in on where they see the direction of the cases. The ad hoc committee of senior unsecured note holders filed a commitment letter dated July 16th and an amended version of its planned term sheet on Wednesday. The group commits to fund up to $25.4 billion in new PG&E equity and new PG&E senior unsecured notes. The amended term sheet's treatment of claims and interests is substantially similar to what was described in the initial term sheet included with the ad hoc group's request to terminate the debtor's plan exclusivity. In total, new capital to be raised from equity and new notes would be between $28.5 billion and $30.9 billion under the amended term sheet, up from $27.5 billion under the prior term sheet. PG&E said that amount would be insufficient as the debtors would need $34.5 billion to exit. The ad hoc subrogation group also stated that it has been developing its own plan that it believes may provide a viable, timely exit from these cases. That plan would, quote, A, allow individual wildfire victims to elect to settle their claims promptly or proceed to litigate and ultimately recover the full compensable value of their claims from a well-funded trust, B, settle subrogation claims at a reasonable level, and C, provide existing equity with the exclusive opportunity to participate in a rights offering to recapitalize the debtors. Rather than rushing to file a planned term sheet with the court, the ad hoc subrogation group says that it has chosen to negotiate with other parties. The ad hoc subrogation group adds that if circumstances warrant, or if the court terminates exclusivity, it is prepared to file its plan. On the motion to terminate exclusivity, the debtors, the ad hoc subrogation group, PG&E Holco Group and the Official Committee of Torts Claimants filed objections while the UCC and Unsecured Notes Trustee BOKF are among the parties that have come out in support of the motion. One sticking point with any plan are the wide range of potential wildfire claims, with the Tort Claimants Committee asserting damages of $54 billion or more and the unsecured note holders in their plan, capping claims at $16 billion subject to an upward adjustment of as much as 15%. The ad hoc unsecured bondholder group's exclusivity termination motion is scheduled to be considered at a hearing on Wednesday, July 24th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Blackhawk Mining, which filed for Chapter 11 on Friday, 
reached an agreement with over 90% of its lenders and more than 89% of equity holders on the terms of a financial restructuring. According to the company's press release, the so-called Straddle Prepack plan will eliminate over 60% of the company's total debt and provide over $150 million of incremental liquidity. Blackhawk has indicated that it intends to emerge from bankruptcy within 60 days. Under the plan, Blackhawk's first and second lien term loan lenders would receive a combination of debt and equity. Specifically, on the effective date of the plan, the company's $639 million first lien term loan would be discharged and lenders would receive 71% of the company's equity and a newly issued $375 million first lien term loan. The company's current $318 million second lien term loan would also be discharged and lenders would receive 29% of the company's equity. Also, Blackhawk would receive $50 million of new money dip financing from certain lenders that will be part of an eventual exit facility. Blackhawk began soliciting votes on its plan on Monday, and the plan and disclosure statement were made available on the website of Prime Clerk on Tuesday. Based upon the company's current projections, pro forma leverage will be less than two times debt to EBITDA in line with industry peers. The disclosure statement indicates projected recoveries of 93.8% for first lien term loan claims and 39% for second lien term loan claims. According to the valuation analysis attached to the disclosure statement, Centerview, the company's financial advisor, estimates the company's total enterprise value between approximately $811 million and $995 million on an assumed effective date of August 30th. Emerge Energy Services, a Fort Worth-based energy services company that mines, processes, and distributes frac sand, filed for Chapter 11 in Delaware on Monday, along with several subsidiaries. The debtors report $329.4 million in assets and $266.1 million in liabilities. The debtors entered into a restructuring support agreement on April 18th with lenders holding 100% in principal amount of outstanding obligations under the company's RCF, as well as creditors holding 100% of second lien notes claims. The RSA contemplates the revolver being paid in cash and second lien notes receiving nearly all reorganized equity along with a partial reinstatement. If they vote to accept the plan, GUCs would receive a global settlement fund, including 5% of reorganized equity that would otherwise go to the seconds. At a first day hearing before Judge Karen Owens on Wednesday, the court granted the debtors all of their requested first day relief, including interim approval of dip financing, which provides access to $7.5 million. The total amount of dip funding requested is $35 million. Emerge is the first major new case assigned to Judge Owens since she was sworn in as a Delaware bankruptcy judge in June. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, Governor Ricardo Rosseo reiterated on Thursday that he would not resign from office despite a massive protest Wednesday evening demanding that he quit. The protest, which according to local media reports, drew more than 100,000 participants, came as fallout continues to mount from last week's release of an 889-page group chat 
in which the governor and a group of advisors use offensive insults targeting women and people with disabilities and plot to smear political opponents. The protests have drawn a number of high-profile participants, including Ricky Martin, a beloved figure on the island, who Roseo and the chat members ridiculed for his sexuality. The recent arrests of former administration officials and consultants in an ongoing federal investigation into government corruption also stoked the outrage. Roseo announced last Saturday evening that he is severing ties with nearly all of the participants in the group chat, and that Chief Financial Officer Christian Sabrino informed him that he is stepping down from his administration posts, which include heading AFOF and the Office of Management and Budget, as well as serving as the governor's representative on the Promesa Oversight Board. Roseo said Secretary of State Luis Rivera Marin had also resigned and that all other cabinet members had been informed that their positions are under evaluation. Nevertheless, the governor is facing mounting pressure from top New Progressive Party leaders to abandon plans to seek re-election in 2020 and consider stepping down sooner. The powerful New Progressive Party Mayor's Federation announced on Saturday night that it has pulled its support for the governor. The Puerto Rico Justice Department and the Government Ethics Office also announced probes into potential illegalities related to the group chat. And on Wednesday... A report published by El Centro de Periodismo Investigativo focused on the role that Elias Sanchez, the governor's former campaign manager and his first Promesa Oversight Board representative, has played in the government contracting process. Sanchez was a member of the group chat now threatening Rosea's hold on power, despite having no government position and working as a lobbyist for multiple government contractors. While Sanchez has received no contracts, He has successfully lobbied for contracts on behalf of clients and received illegal commissions as a result, according to the report. Sources familiar with the situation told Reorg that additional arrests are expected. Separately, AMBAC Assurance Corp. on Tuesday filed a motion seeking to strike certain provisions of the planned support agreement by and between the Promesa Oversight Board as representative of the Commonwealth, certain holders of GO bond claims, and certain holders of PBA bond claims. AMBAC says that the motion to strike is aimed at irreversible issues associated with the PSA and its alleged violations of PROMESA that will hinder the ability of the Oversight Board to effectively restructure the Commonwealth. AMBAC urges the court to act expediently, stating that it is critical that the court strike from the PSA those provisions that are contrary to PROMESA and the duties imposed on the Oversight Board now before the Oversight Board moves forward with a PSA that puts forth a plan that cannot succeed. And in Washington, the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee on Wednesday adopted legislation that boosts Medicaid funding and the federal medical assistance percentage portion of the funding for Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and other territories. The measure must now be approved by the full House. On Thursday, however, U.S. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Charles Grassley and other Republican senators seized on recent corruption arrests in the administration of Governor Rosseo, along with what Grassley says is a long lack of transparency in the Commonwealth government. Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories face this funding cliff on September 30th, when supplemental funding under the program provided under ACA and subsequent disaster relief legislation runs out. Other top stories of this week were... Ohio Senate Utilities Committee to hear HB6, potential impact to FES 
$150 million in free cash flow per year. Sanchez Energy enters interest payment grace period to continue discussions with stakeholders. And opioid lawsuit update. DEA data shows Malincrot, Endo, Teva among top manufacturers of opioids. Stocks, bonds, trade down. And here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Thanks, Alex. Greetings, everybody. Summer slowdown. What summer slowdown? Not this week, I'm afraid, because Monday, July 22nd, kicking it off, a first-day hearing for Blackhawk Mining, a coal producer. They filed Friday, of course, with a pre-pack and looking to deliver the balance sheet by $650 million. Approach Resources comes to the end of a forbearance related to its credit agreement, which has already been extended from July 22nd, and GNC is reporting earnings and is conducting a call to tell you all about them. Tuesday, July 23rd, guess the Hampton Jitney got in because there's doings down at the courthouse. Omnibus hearing for First Energy, a second lien, 507B claim surcharge hearing in Sears, that sounds fun, and a second day hearing in Legacy Reserves. And in Sco Rowan, it's the expo, expiration excuse me, of a tender for up to $724 million of notes. Wednesday, July 24th, Puerto Rico, First Circuit, oral arguments in an omnibus hearing, and PG&E, the California utility, an omnibus hearing. And on the earnings front, we have Albertsons and Tesla. Thursday, July 25th, adjourns a combined Plan DS statement hearing, a plan confirmation hearing in Waypoint, an interim DS approval hearing, and a CETO. Also, a consent solicitation expiration for Avon and second quarter earnings from Matil. Friday, July 26. Well, we made it. An omnibus hearing in Windstream and the expiration of Sable Permian's exchange offer for a bunch of its notes. This has, of course, been extended again and again and again. And last but certainly not least, PG&D, the California utility, reports earnings before the open. They will not be hosting a conference call for members of the financial community. And my friends, that is it. And back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. Now, here's Mark with Adam and Sean to discuss recent helicopter bankruptcies. Thanks, Alex. So we're going to talk offshore energy today, specifically uh, the helicopters. Uh, it's been a pretty uh, exciting um, exciting space, a couple of bankruptcies, um, particularly in the helicopter space, but actually more when you um, go beyond the helicopters and include Weatherford. And I have a sneaking suspicion that there'll be uh, some others uh, as well down the road. Um, so we've got our financial team. We have our legal team uh, here uh, today. Sean Daly, uh, distressed debt uh, legal analyst, and Adam Rhodes, uh, distressed debt financial analyst here to um, to go through uh, to go through the companies. And like I said, we'll, we'll focus on the helicopter space and PHI and Bristow as our um, recent filers um, to understand what's going on. So with that, Adam, let's uh, let's start by focusing on PHI. Um, in particular, I just want to um, get a lay of the land here. Uh, it's a good one to talk about since they do a couple of different things. Um, so if you could um, you know, describe for us uh, the, the, the two different business segments um, or the two main business segments that they have um, and uh, if you break out the revenue and, and, and EBITDA uh, for each of those. Great, yeah, thanks Mark. Um, the two main segments are the oil and gas segment and the, uh, the air medical segment. Uh, they also have a segment called technical services, uh, but combined, they all operate about 236 helicopters. 
or aircraft. Um, the oil and gas, which is the largest segment, is uh, I guess over the last 12 months they did about 380 million dollars of revenue, which is 55 percent of the total. Um, and then from an EBITDA perspective, they generated 38 million dollars EBITDA um, in comparison to um, PHI's 53 million dollars of the LPM period. And then Air Medical represented about 39% of LTM revenue. Um, they compete against um, GMR and Air Methods um, in the air ambulance space. And then some of um, the other revenue is accounted for in the uh, technical services segment. And that is basically helicopter repair, um, overhaul services for uh, customers that own their own aircraft. And it seems to kind of defray some of the costs of the other two segments. Um, so that's pretty small, $40 million of revenue and $7 million of EBITDA. And then they've got a decent allocation for corporate costs, which is like $19 million, which includes AR accounts payable and materials management, et cetera. So um, that's kind of an overview of the company. Great. And um, just, you know, diving deeper into um, in, into the segments, what they do, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, a lot of people are listening probably know the oil and gas side well. Uh, you know, a few years ago you had CHC uh, file um, and, if you're in the uh, the distressed or credit space, you certainly know uh, you know the energy side. But the the medical side of the business might be um, you know new to uh, some of the people. Uh, a reorg, we cover a, a couple of the names. It's a fairly consolidated uh, space. Um, Air Medical is one. Obviously, not can be confused with um, what PHI calls its segment. Just a you know a different um, a different company. Air Method, another one. Um, why don't you uh, discuss? Um, you know, for everybody, there's some recent trends in the um, in in the emergency air space. Um, there's a proposed legislation that uh, that had some mixed reviews of whether or not it will help or hurt the industry. Um, if you could just uh, discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, both those competitors, which is interesting, are sponsor-owned. Um, Air Medical now trades under the uh, Global Medical Response name. So. Um, on that side, uh, while the aging U.S. population provides a tailwind, uh, those operators are facing pressure from declining reimbursement trends from payers. The so payers in the space include private insurance, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and individuals. Uh, in terms of government payers, Medicare and Medicaid, um, according to PHI, both of them pay well below the actual cost of service. So that's an issue for them. Um, and then recently... Um, the space is sold off due to what you'd mentioned, some legislation. The U.S. Senate um, just recently advanced the Lower Healthcare Costs Act out of the Healthcare Committee on June 26, um, and that legislation is intended to address surprise medical bills or balance bills, um, including in the air medical space, air ambulance space. So, um, under the legislation. Um, Insurance companies have billed balances at median, regional, and network rates. And it kind of gets a little fuzzy here. Um, the median, regional, and network rates are not clearly defined in the bill's current form. Um, PHI, on a recent lender call for its exit facility, said that the bill will benefit its business um, because According to them, um, most of the regional rates are higher than the average out-of-network rates um, that they see. Uh, most of its in-network rates are higher than the average out-of-network uh, rates that they see in the market. So, 
Um, it's not clear uh, whether they're talking about um, gross bill. For them, I think they're talking about gross billing, but it's not clear what the uh, the legislation is saying. So, um, given the sell-off, it implies that the rest of the market is, is uh, thinking that it's going to be net rates in terms of how it's going to be applied. But as you'd expect, this legislation hasn't hit the floor of the Senate, so there's a lot of moving parts. If the out-of-network language reduces uh, reimbursement to in-network prices, it will decrease the overall revenue from the industry. That's great. And, and we'll, uh, you know, certainly um, examine, you know, how that sort of uncertainty might uh, play out in, in, the, in the company um, when they exit from, from bankruptcy, given their, their projections. Um, you had put out a, um, you know, you recently just put out a waterfall model, uh, but also analyzed um, some of their uh, exit financials. Um, so, I'm I'm not sure if that was taken into account when um, the 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 debtors and stakeholders thought about the proper capital structure here. But um, I think you do a nice job of uh, examining um, perhaps some of the the, the risks uh, given uh, given where cash flow is projected. Um, and we're going to go all in, uh, we're going to go into that um, you know shortly. But I want to bring Sean into the discussion. Um, so PHI um, you know is 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 getting closer um, to their um, to their to their end date, uh, you know, they have a plan in place, agreement uh, with, uh, amongst the parties. Uh, Bristow is, is, is not quite, um, you know, there yet, but has been in bankruptcy for a little while. But I actually want to start here on the beginning, um, Sean, because um, it was pretty interesting the way these two cases uh, started or what was disclosed that happened. Um, I think a day in, in each case uh, prior to, uh, to each filing where both companies um, had taken out um, loans uh, a day prior to them, uh, which is sort of unusual. Um, you know, typically companies would, would, would go the route of, um, of a dip, wait until after they, uh, they file uh, uh, for bankruptcy. But here they did it just one day uh, prior to it. So why don't you um, tell us uh, about um, those loans, uh, what made them unique, and uh, I guess what's been the fallout um, in each case from those Sure, Mark. Uh, so you were 100% right. These uh, you know immediately pre-petition, but still kind of look like a dip loans. Um, very rare. I I think the you know the the main factor here is that there were um, unencumbered assets that were you know it was it was pretty easy to get a lien on them and quickly. Um, so with helicopter, or I mean, more generally aircraft registration, you have a centralized FAA uh, registration process in the U.S., which allows you to, to sort of very quickly um, get in, lean these things up. Uh, talking with someone who has a little bit more experience in that space, he said these are, you know, quote, basically unscrew-upable. Um, <laughs> So that's that's nice because you know one one issue you run into if you're trying to do this within a couple of days of the petition date is well maybe you don't get all the appropriate UCC filings um, in you know the the various jurisdictions where you where you need them, um, but to to step back, I mean you know because because you can I think is a, is the reason for these. Um, Really, just the availability of of collateral. I I think they also both use one difference in PHI. You had a, a third party lender that was not previously in the in the cap structure, to the best of my knowledge, um, that came in, funded this loan, 
And in Bristow, by contrast, you had an ad hoc group of secured note holders. Um, but I, I mean, it's really about, I, I think, you know, people are always talking about case control in the context of a dip. I think you, you have a similar effect here. Um, if you can come to an agreement with the debtors, right, if you're, if you're the preferred party, you can anchor the discussions and the negotiations going forward in the case. Uh, because there was a, a lot of uproar uh, in PHI, particularly from the unsecured notes that prior to this Blue Torch loan um, thought you know they, they were in a little bit better position. Uh, Bristow as well, um, there were some, some challenges right away. So it's, it's an interesting trade-off. I, I think if you try to fund one of these loans right before the petition date, uh, it, again, assuming that you can, you're going to run into some um, some pushback pretty quickly, and and that's somewhat played out, uh, you know, right? So the um, plan and and PHI has evolved, um, Bristow, I think, uh, as well as as sort of evolved, and um, um, you know, PHI, the uh, that 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 Blue Torch loan will be getting paid um, in full, but perhaps some of the other parties. Um, uh, there is some fallout, uh, right? Uh, so the CEO is is basically forced to um, to exit, um, and it, it seems. And stop me if I'm wrong, but it seems like challenging um, these um, these loans was a good tactic, good way for um, unsecured note holders to sort of get a seat at the table. Um, perhaps is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, we can we can definitely talk about that. I, I think you know the the initial plan construct that was put out versus where we've wound up uh, in both PHI and in Bristow is is very different. Um, yes. So yeah, I, I guess we can move there. Yeah, next, please naturally. let's let's go. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So the uh, the very first plan that the PHI debtors filed, and this was within. I don't know, two or three weeks of, of uh, the petition date. So it's, you know, speedy. Uh, they said, okay, Blue Torch, we're going to replace that with a, a similarly structured exit facility. Uh, the 32 claim, um, so 32 LLC is this entity that was affiliated with uh, Gonsolin, the, you know, CEO, uh, controlling shareholder. Uh, that was a, a term loan that was put in place to you know, take out a revolver in fall of 2018. Um, that was going to receive reorganized equity, and there was, I, I guess, I would hesitate to call it a, a full-on uh, death trap provision, but uh, it would receive uh, different amounts of equity depending on whether unsecured notes, claims, and um, accepted or rejected the plan. Those unsecured notes claims were going to get uh, essentially all of the reorg equity that the 32 claim did not get, and that would be split pro rata. Uh, essentially, anything unsecured was all kind of lumped in together, unsecured notes claims, um, general unsecured claims. Um, and then existing PHI equity was going to get um, a very shiny, lovely goose egg. Uh, under the uh, the latest plan, which was reached after uh, various you know back and forth, the parties went to mediation. Um, the Blue Torch claim now, instead of being replaced with an exit facility, is is getting cashed out. 
32 claim as well is getting cashed out. Uh, Gonsolin, I believe, is is you know as part of this settlement has to retire and step away. Um, so drastic, you know, change in in the treatment of of that claim. Now general unsecured claims uh, still pro rata share of post reorg equity, but I believe now it's you know it's 100 um, percent pre dilution equity that you're you're carving up. Um, aircraft lessor claims are also in the unsecured pool, and there's actually now a convenience claims class. So you're just you know you're getting rid of any small general unsecured claims without giving them you're you're giving them cash instead of free org equity um there's also well, let's see what stayed the same um same management incentive plan up to 10 percent of post reorg equity oh i almost forgot the equity holders mm-hmm. uh equity holders are now getting three-year warrants for five percent of post reorg equity so that's that's nice that's a so quite quite a change in terms of um a very, I guess you could call it top-heavy plan to, uh, you know, one where you're getting uh, junior creditors and then, like you say, equity um, participating um, in this. And and Bristow has uh, has changed uh, as well, right? Right. Yeah. So Bristow actually filed with an RSA with the same group of uh, the ad hoc group of secured note holders that agreed to provide this immediately pre-petition dip and then also made a commitment for a, a traditional dip financing. Uh, but it was it was interesting. It was, you know, there's obviously a trend towards uh, cases filing with more RSAs right at the beginning. This was, you know, if you if you just saw the name at the top, you wouldn't realize it was a little bit more bare bones. It was it was, you know, setting terms structurally saying, you know, oh, unsecured or uh, excuse me, secured notes, you know, we will take um, reorg equity, you know, except to the extent that uh, the court says to satisfy the, the best interest test for confirmation that we need to give it to unsecured. So definitely trying to, without saying anything about valuation, right, trying to move the goalposts in a direction that was that was favorable to them, um, and now what we've seen the latest plan, uh, unsecured notes are walking away with uh, the equity, ninety percent of the rights in a four hundred million dollar rights offering. So there's a lot of you know much more new capital coming into into Bristow relative to to PHI, um, but just really sort of oh, and there's they're splitting now. Unsecureds and secureds are each getting half of a one hundred and fifty million dollar traditional dip. So, yeah, in in both cases, I I think you know you've you've seen this slide from, um, you know, parties who would otherwise be considered more senior, um, and advocating perhaps for a lower valuation, taking away less as you know negotiations go on. So it, it, it's interesting because you know uh, either. To drive that, um, and since money would be coming from these junior creditors as well, there has to be a belief, I would think, that um, there's some perhaps recovery in the industry or just some some positive thoughts on um, on enterprise uh, on enterprise value, which you know should be um, should tie also to uh, to 
financial projections as well and, and, and be somewhat reasonable. So Adam, I wanted to um, you know, go and examine some of those, uh, those projections uh, on PHI. Um, you know, they lay everything out and actually provided a lot of detail uh, in, a, uh, in a lender presentation as well. Um, so in, in an article that you had put out, um, you show LTM EBITDA going from 53 million um, to a pro forma uh, result, uh, which takes into account um, some, some cost savings uh, that they're getting from bankruptcy. And then a further 77 um, million, uh, so another 10 million increase um, uh, to get to the company's 2021 projections. And that's all, um, so EBITDA. So let's, um, you know, let, if you could analyze um, both of those movements, so going from 53 to 67, um, the bulk of that, um, as you described, is at 11 million lease saving um, expense, which, you know, my first, my gut reaction is it's not very large because, um, you know, I think of uh, what happened to CHC and, uh, you know, they, they, um, they, they got a ton of savings uh, from from leases here. That's not eleven million. not such a such a big number. So hoping you could explain that. And then secondly, going from sixty seven to seventy seven, um, what's behind those assumptions? Is there a um, a big belief in in sort of a uh, a turnaround um, in this in this industry? Yeah, definitely. So um, compared to its peers who have filed for bankruptcy. PHI has relatively few leased helicopters. At least 17 of its uh, 236 aircraft as of June. So, um, for comparison, CHC, which filed in 2016, had 71% of its 230 helicopter fleet leased. Um, and then Bristow, which we've been talking about, leases approximately 31% of its uh, 260 um, aircraft fleet. So, um, in that $53 million of EBITDA, um, adjusted uh, pro forma EBITDA, that all, already includes um, $2 million of CEO uh, pay savings as well as $1 million um, from eliminating the company's public cost, uh, public company costs as they're going to be a uh, private company going forward. Uh, but in terms of a market recovery implied in the forecast, uh, the forecast shows a 10% increase in oil and gas revenue per hour uh, from 2018 to 2021, uh, which means that this it's implying some balancing of the market um, over the projection period. And then in the other large segment, uh, Air Medical, um, the forecast results benefit from um, higher IPM and CPM model uh, flight hours, but the forecast still implies a 9% decrease in medical, um, air medical revenue hours over the uh, over the course of the forecast. So um, that's mixed, but um, the 10% increase in revenue per hour uh, is meaningful on the oil and gas side. Uh, so that's, yeah, so that's interesting. Um, I mean, it doesn't really translate though into a huge amount of um, increased EBITDA. Um, so the, the volume assumptions, I guess, on the oil and gas side can't be, uh, can't be great, right? Because that, um, I don't think you're really seeing that full 10% uh, pass through to the bottom line. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the Volume, volume stay relatively flat over the projection period, flat to just slightly down. Um, so, what does this all mean then for for cash flow? Uh, what you know, if you take that EBITDA numbers, is the company um, in your minds uh, in your mind um, 
you know, I don't know, sustainable or, you know, risk-free here? Um, is there enough of a cushion um, here, do you think, uh, over the next couple of years um, if, you tra- if you go from EBITDA down to cash flow? Yeah, I mean, going forward, cash flow is going to be tight. Um, we don't know what the price of the exit facility is going to be. So um, there's some variability there. But just in terms of unlevered cash flows, um, there's not a ton to go around, um, in my view, at least. Um, helicopters are pretty expensive machinery to maintain. So um, the company has limited um, spending on upgrading um, the new aircraft throughout the, uh, the projection period. It's a little bit of an allocation, but it's much less than um, in historic years. Um, but on the backside, uh, like we discussed already, uh, the company had $200 million of secured debt, which included the, uh, the related party um, term loan that the company had entered, and then the Blue Torch loan uh, with $70 million, so it's 130 plus $70 million. Um, and I think that kind of factored into the, uh, the post-reorg uh, post equity, sorry, the post-reorg um, capital structure that we see going forward. So, uh, the first two iterations of the plan, um, as Sean mentioned, a significant portion of the equity was going to be distributed to um, Algonquin through his um, term loan, and then after the mediation, uh, there was an agreement that was struck, um, and as we mentioned, the unsecured is going to get essentially all the backside equity. Um, and to do so, uh, the secured guys had to be paid out in full. So um, that's $200 million that has to be accounted for on the other side of the bankruptcy. And despite um, the unsecured doing the minimum cash, uh, the $75 million minimum cash rights offering, um, there's still going to be um, a lot of debt given the uh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll see. And, and Bristow is not as far along, but we have the constructs of the plan. So similar uh, to, you know, to PHI, um, the, the plan is is funded on the backs of um, the unsecured note holders here who, um, you know, there too, they must, you know, be, be, be thinking that there's some recovery um, in this space. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what those uh, projections look like uh, too. And um, yeah, we'll continue to follow the, uh, the, the helicopter space, but then the, uh, the overall offshore energy space as well. Um, Adam, Sean, thank you very much. Uh, this has been great. And Alex, back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Alex Brosman.